This is the Wabash Center's monthly podcast, Dialogue on Teaching. In this first episode, the dialogue is with African-American colleagues teaching in higher education. We discuss issues of race-critical consciousness. It is so good to see you all here. Thank you. You too. I'm Nancy Lynn Westfield, director of the Wabash Center. I'm sitting here with my friends and my colleagues. I'm with Brian Bantam from Garrett Evangelical Seminary. Hello. And I'm with Evelyn Parker from Perkins. How are you doing, Dr. Westfield? Good to see you. And I'm here with Willie Jennings from Yale Divinity. Glad you're here. And with Deborah Mullen from Columbia Theological Seminary. It's great to be here, man. Thank I'm you. Glad to be here together. Um, our conversation is about race-critical consciousness um, and how it moves in the larger society, how it moves within our teaching life, our own classrooms, as well as in the institutions where we find ourselves working as scholars of religion. Um, so let's just kind of launch into that conversation. What are, what, are there some... Um, personal experiences, uh, both challenging as well as joyful about issues of race, issues of black and brown bodies in these spaces of scholarship that we might want to um, use as touchstones for our conversation. Well, this is one of the most um, difficult times to be teaching about these matters and one of the best times to be teaching about these matters. Uh, I have never had the experience in my many years of teaching to have so many easy illustrations about the problems of race, white supremacy, mm. ignorance, and resistance. They are all mm. around us. Yeah. One of the great challenges now is how not to allow the anger that I feel as I teach to overwhelm my goals of teaching because the issues that surround us are so absolutely urgent. Yeah. But there used to be, um, not used to be, there still are conversations about should we bring outside politics, and I say politics loosely, into our classrooms. Well, as you say, it's so vivid, you cannot not bring them into the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, things are so palpable yeah. about issues of race and bigotry mm -hmm. and prejudice yeah. and white supremacy that it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. We, we have, as you all know, we have a legacy of those who were before us as teachers who always bridged that gap, who always taught whatever field they're teaching in light of what was going on, not only in the world, but going on immediately around them. And so we, we have a lot of teachers who went before us who taught us why we have to do this, and in many ways, how we have to do this. The challenge for us is how do we do it in this particular moment, because it's a different moment. And I think, too, I mean, one of the things that makes this such a, a powerful moment is on, I mean, I've, I've actually seen students shift. So 10 years ago when I started teaching, it was a long, complicated process to prime them, to get them ready, to build trust. And then you could really like start chipping away at stuff. Till like around five years ago, I was getting ready to run up on the door and they, the door just like wasn't even there. I fell into the room because students actually felt the problem in their body. And this is everything from, from black students to Latino, Latina students, to Asian American students, even white students. like. They felt in their body that there was something wrong. But at the same time, 
there was actually not only my anger I had to manage, but their anger mm-hmm. or their like loss of hope or and so in that way it was a, it was a such a different space to teach inside of because you're really almost pastor you're literally pastoring mm-hmm. as you're trying to teach, but then also give them some semblance of hope while not like like while not kind of polishing over the complexities and so holding that space constantly i just find myself to be it's so much to hold from week to week well and the illusion that classrooms are supposed to be for the mind and somehow the church is for the heart or you only bring your mind into a classroom as a scholar you only give your mind it's not about your body or your all that has been obliterated in this oh, yeah. era mm-hmm. because people are so anxious, people are so upset, people are looking for hope mm-hmm. even in scholarly conversations, especially in scholarly conversations. Mm-hmm. So those lines are gone. I mean, you almost have to hold on to them to make them happen because our students are saying, no, I, wanna, I want to be emotive. I have to be emotive. Yeah. I don't have a choice even in our own classrooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the students that are self-selecting into my classes, they're demanding that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the, but also becomes the problem is that there's a kind of polarization where students who want to live in a kind of ignorance, mm-hmm. they do not find their the way to live. They, they bypass it. Um, so you're really only trying to catalyze or uh, kind of cultivate a, a small little community that you hope then can kind of have an effect beyond that space. But yeah, those students demand it. They'll, they'll let you know. Sometimes I found like I was like not progressive enough because it didn't have this text, it didn't have that issue, or I didn't use the right pronoun, or and so I've actually found myself having to both teach and learn at the same time, which is really scary. I have uh, been serving as academic dean for the past six years, so my teaching is limited to two courses a year. Um, and I'm saying that because um, I find that when I teach a required course, the Church in the Social Context, where we lift up issues of white supremacy and we read texts about this uh, uh, issue, as well as other intersecting issues in terms of gender and class and sexuality, that uh, students are primed, they're ready for these conversations. But as academic dean, I'm having uh, students that, uh, particular African American students that are coming to me who come and want to talk about the stresses of being in classes where their bodies are just denied or abused in ways. And uh, even uh, their, their intellect, I mean, there's assumptions about what they can't do uh, when they enter into a class. And uh, it's, it's heartbreaking when uh, a student that's my age that comes to me and cries in my office because she um, was just so cast down saying that I never have been treated as if I could not learn languages. Uh, but that's the way I've been, I feel in, in, in my class that I'm just not good enough to learn, I'm just going to say whatever, it's Greek or Hebrew. And uh, it's and, uh, and she clearly identifies that issue because she is a woman of color. So having to negotiate both the care, pastorally, as you said, Brian, uh, with students that are experiencing some injustice because of race, gender, I would say class as well, uh, that I, in a class that I'm not teaching, but I have a responsibility because that's a student. And then on the other hand, when I'm in the class, 
And these things do intersect when people who are uh, of color, who are also outwardly GBLTQI, know that they need to have a conversation somewhere about these issues. Um, it's just a right time and uh, for that to happen. And um, I feel a responsibility. You have to be accountable to the responsibility, to, to the office of being teacher and, and administrators like mm -hmm. academic dean to, to respond in a way that is helpful, um, life-giving, if you will, for the students. So many schools in trying to be responsive to race consciousness and, and in earnest responsive to race consciousness um, have exhausted their capacity for change by saying, we'll put a person of color book on our syllabus. And that feels like that has just strained people to the max. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, right, that's considered a major change, where from most of our perspective as people of color, negotiating white supremacy in these institutions and in these classrooms, that's just a modicum of shift and change. So when you've got a student in your class, an African-American woman student in your classroom who has been treated badly because her body has been read as being ignorant or unable to learn, but the colleague's response is, but I have a black book on my syllabus, it's, it's a, like a non sequitur, right? You, those things don't make any sense for the student. They certainly don't make any sense for the colleagues, for the, act, for the act colleagues of color. But for the students, she's just lost in the system. Yes. Yeah. The, you know, it's, um, I've been out of the classroom for a little while now, you know, with my transition um, out of institutional teaching and being, you know, emeritus faculty um, at Columbia Seminary. But um, the, the kind of long arc of watching this, you know, when I first started teaching 30 years ago, you know, I used to teach the classes that I used to call the fissures, you know, the classes nobody wanted to teach, the race, sex, exactly. gender kind of classes. And it was, it was kind of like, you know, that, that um, parallel, you know, seminary, you know, the seminary that walk, walked alongside of the institutional curriculum and so on. And, and it was almost like being, you know, um, kind of in the closet, you know, um, people who would take the classes, some people who may have been queer, um, you know, kind of, and weren't out, you know, taking these classes on sexuality, because I was teaching those classes, and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, traditional African-American tradition church, church folk taking these classes, they kind of, you know, had to sneak into the class and sneak out of the class. In some ways, I, I think on the hopeful side, which is where Willie sort of juxtaposed the, you know, the, the tension and the hope, um, with this advent of language to describe what we're doing, race critical consciousness in our pedagogy, in our, you know, um, institutional um, presence, you know, the power of this intersectionality that now allows there to be a conversation and discourse across these formally marginalized and marginated and minoritized communities. At least that seems to be a hopeful place that we're moving to um, as teachers in, in traditional academic um, theological institution, as well as those of us who have spent a lot of time in administration um, and who find ourselves being the pedagogues of the institution, mm 
yes. teaching yes. institutions how to mm -hmm. teach mm -hmm. about these things, you know. A lot of institutions um, are becoming aware of the uh, more need for equity, pedagogical equity, pedagogical awareness mm -hmm. in doing yes. better in understanding not only the students in their classrooms as more racial ethnic students come to the place called That's seminary, right. come to the study of religion, right. um, but also as the country itself, yes. right? We're not waiting for the browning of America. No. America has already browned. That's it. Right? So the strategies that we had that were subversive strategies for those of us who have been teaching long, long, long time, right? Yeah. right? We would do these subversive things, these right. subversive classrooms now have maybe in many places been mainstream that's right yeah. but have they lost their power in mainstreaming yeah. mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. do our brown body have our brown bodies been co-opted mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. what we've been trying to do have we moved the needle mm -hmm. any in these conversations mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. yeah well i think uh, exploitation mm -hmm. of us mm -hmm. has always been a part of our reality of institutions mm -hmm. the the moment we are in is a crisis moment for institutions, mm -hmm. which might allow us to break open and be freed from the exploitive logics that have shaped the way we have functioned in many of these institutions. Mm -hmm. The challenge for institutions now is to realize that they are truly in a crisis. Yeah. Some institutions know that. There are other institutions, they still haven't gotten a memo <laughs> that <laughs> this is a crisis. <laughs> and it's not a crisis simply because there's not enough bodies or enough money, but the very fabric of the education, mm -hmm. the very shape of it, has to change, given not only who we are, mm -hmm. but the kinds of questions mm -hmm. about doing whatever we're going to do, whether it's ministry, yeah. whether it's going on to do scholarship, the, the shape of what we want to do, mm -hmm. this way, well, what the students want to do and need to do, is forcing a, a profound crisis. So many people, not all, as you say, know there's a crisis. Mm -hmm. We know what we need to change from, Willie. We don't know what to change to. Right, mm -hmm. right. So and from my perspective, until we ask the creative, imaginative, divergent thinking, cre you know, people who are going to throw some new stuff out there, mm -hmm. but we keep doing the same old stuff, right, right, mm -hmm. right. wanting new answers, knowing we've got to change. Right. Right. So how do we not only experiment, but take some of those experiments and get some traction and not have experiments be a one-off thing, right. say we tried something, we didn't put any resources behind it necessarily, right. 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 or those creative people tried it over there, we're not going to repeat it again because that's right. for somebody else. There's two kinds of experiments that institutions that I've seen are in the midst of. The one kind of experiment is tied to financial ends. So how can we experiment in order to make more money or make money. And then there's another level of experiment. How can we experiment to actually have an education that is for the future? And sometimes people get that confused. They think the one form of experiment is actually the other form of experiment, but they are not. Now, it would be nice if those two kinds of experiments were aligned, but sometimes they're not or sometimes, sometimes they're not in phase. So mm -hmm. the hope to have some kind of set of beautiful ideas mm -hmm. that are going to give us a whole new set of students and money, great. But sometimes the, the, the ideas that are really at play is to fundamentally rethink yeah. our teaching, fundamentally reteach the way we understand our disciplines mm -hmm. for the sake of the students. Mm -hmm. And if there's money to be, to be made, we hope that it's there, but 
this, the, this experiment that we have to be about can't always be easily aligned to making more money. It's, it's so often a hue and cry to say, is theological education uh, relevant? Mm -hmm. um, Chuck Foster, one of my mentors, said that the question is not, are we well relevant? We're of course relevant. The question is, how will we be relevant in this generation mm -hmm. and moving forward, mm -hmm. right? We're asking mm -hmm. the wrong questions even mm -hmm. in, in either kind of experiment that we're doing. Mm -hmm. we're, by wondering, mm -hmm. do we have relevance, mm -hmm. then if you're asking that kind of rudimentary question, there's no really experiment to be had. But I wonder if it's not a powerful shift to think that um, experimentation when conceived as an individualized project might be much more limited than the power of experimentation where you actually are in conversation with colleagues who are thinking the same things and committed to doing the same kind of work and therefore not as easily one-offed or, or made to feel as though what they're doing is irrelevant. That's right. What does it mean to ask the brown communities, the Asian communities, the Latino communities, what kind of education do you want yes. instead of imposition? Mm -hmm. But we know those, those lessons we should have learned with the missionaries. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you mean the old missionaries? <laughs> the old missionaries. Not the new missionaries. <laughs> so the, I mean, the power struggle seems like it still stays with whiteness yeah. and a new yeah. version of the perpetuation of whiteness. Uh, well, that's, and that's the thing, though. I mean, it's, it's not just the it's not just the the failure of the theological system or the duress of the of the theological education, but also the denominations, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole thing you before you you were a Methodist, you'd go to seminary, you'd get yourself a church. Mm -hmm. There was a direct line from A to B to C, right? And now everything is kind of upset. But then we ask, and then now theological education is like. Oh crap! What's going on? <laughs> Thinking the whole thing's falling apart, but in fact, young folk are still—they're actually creating communities, yes. and they're actually engaging in deeply pastoral yes. functions mm -hmm. and creative functions and oratory. I mean, so there are all of these traditions that are emerging. So it's not like things are falling apart right. and now the world is going, although the world is going kind of crazy, but it's not as though people aren't creating community and that those communities don't have a certain kind of semblance of Christian life. Mm -hmm. What the young people are saying is that denominational structure mm -hmm. that tried to kill me, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to reproduce. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in some ways, like we, we do a disservice to their prophetic departure by not actually beginning to ask, okay, what are the kinds of communities that you all are creating, and how can we partner and be and foster and cultivate mm -hmm. and strengthen those kinds of things? And, and so whether it's theological education and curriculums that have more flexibility, that are more interdisciplinary, mm -hmm. um, that are not trying to reproduce themselves. So, I mean, I'm increasingly believing that we... If our system is, was more predicated on a kind of model of an MFA, right, where you know, if you're sitting in a class with Toni Morrison and you write Bluest Die Part 2, mm -hmm. you failed, mm -hmm. right? That wasn't the point, mm -hmm. was to reproduce what your, what your teacher did. Mm -hmm. But if you create something that has a kind of originality, spoke, speaks to that moment, but draws upon the, all of these different traditions in lots of different ways, but then create something that's particular to that moment, 
you've succeeded, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm increasingly asking myself, why is it, is that the actual, should that be actually the future for theological mm -hmm. education? Mm -hmm. um, that we are kind of incubators of these kind of creative possibilities and mm -hmm. help people learn techniques, help people learn how to read, mm -hmm. but also learn how to people to create for their moment. Mm -hmm. um, because they're already doing that. Yeah. They just need help and they need space and they need money. They need, uh, and it allows them to network in some ways to then create mm -hmm. some new professional spaces that, um, that they're doing right now, but for free. But yeah. the creation of knowledge that you're talking about, that folkways and indigenous peoples have mm -hmm. done since the beginning of time, is not what happens usually in higher education classrooms. Higher education classrooms are meant that you come to the expert and, and the expert inflicts his or her information <laughs> on you and your situation. <laughs> and you, so you, you would be rearranging the role and responsibility. You are, and yeah. what you just said, the role and responsibility. And heightening then who the professor is by the fact that she's a woman is, then becomes even more important. The fact that her, her race, her nationality, what, how, who she is in the classroom mm -hmm. is heightened, not decreased in, that, in your scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think leadership from a, uh, an institution that is aware of the way you just, just what you described would create a situation or create an environment where faculty would be uh, introduced, made aware, and called, held accountable for thinking anew mm -hmm. about how they teach mm -hmm. so that they can be relevant. Mm -hmm. Because you're really talking about relevance. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of, of creating an environment where a person can think critically. What, what I mean when I say think critically, that is be able to ask beautiful questions and then um, to structure a solution to problems that they find within their communities. That's what I believe is critical thinking. And, 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 and a faculty that um, is aware that there are injustices, a faculty that knows that it's more than just the book by a person of color, is going to be required for them to move into creating a space where students will learn to be a critical thinker by honoring their stories, mm -hmm. by honoring their tradition, mm -hmm. and not feeling like, oh, I've got this burden and i got to learn the culture of mm -hmm. 25 people in my classroom. Well, yes and no, but mm -hmm. if you create a space where the 25 can tell their stories without being censored mm -hmm. or made to feel like they're an anomaly or exotic, exotic. <laughs> then you are creating a, a learning environment where it will move your class and your institution into a place where they too can think creatively and they can fashion new products and solve problems that are relevant for the time. Because that's what leadership will require, right? And that's what we were talking about in our in, in, the other day, you know, when we talked about faculty formation. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a totally different way of learning to be faculty. Different assumptions about what Absolutely, faculty is. because it means, again, it goes back to this being not a lone ranger solo profession, yeah. which is what traditionally preparation for ministry has been. You know, down to the fact that institutions basically required their students to do their own integration. Mm -hmm. it, there was no space, space for, 
or community of practice, really. I mean, there was field education, but that was always off to the side, right? And to try to bring that into the middle of the curriculum. And had no political clout. No, yeah, no. And so, you know, part and of no the, budget. No, <laughs> so part of the battle for those of us who kept trying to pull it into the center, you know, I mean, that still goes on in places. But And students have gotten ahead of us, and they've said, you know, we're going to take what we need from this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like a cafeteria, yeah. and we won't leave the rest behind. But the faculty hasn't really been right. um, compelled or constrained yet to get into that kind of place where we better get into this thing as a community. Yeah. One of the fundamental challenges we face is rethinking doctor formation mm -hmm. and who winds up doing PhDs. Mm -hmm. um, that whole process exists as though race critical consciousness does not exist. Mm -hmm. That whole process exists as though people of color do not exist, that women do not exist. That process, as one colleague said to me, is from the neck up. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about anything else. And the difficulty is that until we can face the problem of doctor formation, mm -hmm. how programs admit people, who gets admitted, the evaluative structure for admitting them, until we can challenge that fundamental process, we're going to be stuck in, in many of these problems right into the middle of the next century. My challenge is who you identify as a potential mentor that has the potential even to apply. Like, how do you groom people even before the application? So we're still, though, institutionally looking to ourselves as minoritized people to fix Stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. Although right. I th at this point, I think there are enough there are enough spaces that are more than crevices. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like there is a there's a, there's a certain set of networks, mm -hmm. a couple, a handful of institutions where either the institution itself has said we at least think we want to be about it, but we don't know how, mm -hmm. or enough people who have who are big enough at their institution to say like y'all don't bother me and nobody bothers them, that we can actually create spaces for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I think at this point, like I've kind of given up on the, on the possibility of reforming an institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that there is something transformative if I create a space of life for myself, mm -hmm. which, which, need, which requires other people. That's right. And I have enough power now to say like, hey, like, Mr. Dean, can you, uh, like, I really like this person. Can you mm -hmm. see what, what's possible there? And Mrs. Dean, can you, like, let me, can you have a little bit of money, money for this? And if I can create a small network of four or five people, get a couple doctoral students inside of that work, I think that, I think that can be world changing. A significant contribution. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And that's relevant. That's it's, it's kind of Jesus-like. I mean, I think we, just from what you were describing, Brian, I remember um, persons, people seeking me out, saying this is where you should be in kind of a, um, a relationship way, you know, nothing, nothing grandiose, nothing, you know, no but saying, let's have coffee once a week, take this class, you know, go over here and meet this person, do those kind of things. So, that, so what you're describing is the change doesn't happen in these mammoth 
right. you know, shifts. The no. change happens in these relational ways, Relation. given the influence and affluence we have attained in these little spots that we're able to be in as African-American people, right? It's not like we're not in the house anymore, right? We're here. How do we use our influence to do these important pieces of work? And they might be identifying doctoral students and treating them differently than we were treated when we were in this program. And I I saw that. I mean, I was at, I I did my doctoral work at a place that will not be named. And Maybe would not have been particularly amenable to my project, but it was a it was a, a kind of brief moment where there was a critical mass of like and by critical mass I mean like four people, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. three African Americans, a couple of like-minded white folk, and and then a couple of doctoral students. And inside of that little space, a couple of doctoral students became fourteen, and this this poor advisor had thirteen students before he left. <laughs> <laughs> more than anybody else yeah. because other people saw that there was something happening there. Mm-hmm. Now, the institution did not recognize it, but I did see the possibility like that small, mm-hmm. that's what formed me. Mm-hmm. I didn't need the whole institution mm-hmm. to be for me. Mm-hmm. I needed a space that could cultivate yes. me and empower me so that I could see something for myself. Mm-hmm. Now, if those that can get multiplied in multiple mm-hmm. places, I think that's I think that's I think that's transformative. I also think that um, a way of of mentoring uh, uh, a potential student that we see promise in could be in simple ways uh, that through connections. Uh, I'll, I'll, I remember one of my students, very very promising, bright young lady, was moving um, out of the city. Uh, to uh, to Tennessee, and uh, she had read um, another woman's scholar, and uh, and I said, and I just thought, hmm, I wonder if that professor is teaching a course, and I sent her an email, and she says, yes, I'm teaching such and such a course. So I told the student, I said, why don't you consider taking this course at that institution? You would be studying with this woman's scholar. And her mouth dropped, her eyes got like, I can do this? I said, yeah, all you need to do is sign up. And uh, it was as if I had given her the biggest Christmas gift, and it wasn't Christmas. And it was just... You gave her a key, right? You gave her a key to a door. That's a nice metaphor. Yes, yes. And who knows where it's going to take her from there because she's been introduced to another scholar who sees her potential that's broader than my immediate circle. Yeah. So that's an example of how we can mentor by networking, you know, to share... Uh, to see the, to see if you see the potential in the student that I think I've seen. And if they say, yes, I do, then they will share the student. Mm-hmm. And who knows if the student is eventually in a doctoral program yeah, that's okay. been mentored by a number of people that's from a, a, the, the community of womanists. But yeah. that's, I'm sorry, but even that, it, it seems like it's an incidental, you know, intervention in some ways. But intentional. But, uh, well, yeah, I'm not saying incidental and intentional are very different. I'm just saying it seems incidental, but I can't name how many students would come to my office and say, you know, Doc, I want to go into doctoral studies. And first I'd say, well, it's not doctoral. <laughs> it's, it's doctoral. And you just got admitted to the M. So you need to slow down here and you're working full time and trying to do a church. We need to talk about that. 
but my point is that, you know, this idea, I'm going to go on and do a, do a doctoral program, and they have no idea right. about what you just talked about, the importance of someone there who's going to be interested in their work, yeah. and how that incident of our helping to redirect them and say, hey, you know, that person is there. Well, the life of a scholar is not on view, so people don't know what we do, mm -hmm. right? And I also remember the women in my church, the women in my family, the men and the women in my family in my church, when I said I'm going to go do this PhD, even though it wasn't quite in their imaginations, right. they knew it was important for our community. Exactly. Right? So they were pressing the dollars in your yes. hand when you come home at spring break, yes. I'm praying for you. Mm -hmm. And that was not a passing thing. No. They, you knew they were actually on their knees, That's right? right? That's right. Yes. Supporting you in That's doing right. whatever that That's was. Right. I think we... That it's on one hand, I think it's important for our students to see us in our classrooms doing the work of scholarship. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm not sure our students are prepared, black, white, and otherwise, when they see our bodies in these classrooms, they tend to say, that's not real scholarship mm -hmm. because it's in a brown body. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not, mm -hmm. that's not the, other, the white man's mm -hmm. a scholar. Mm -hmm. This black woman is doing yeah. something else other than yeah. scholarship. Yeah. yeah, or the other flip side of that is they see our brown bodies, our black bodies, and they say, I want to do that. But they have no idea what it takes. Or if they can do it, how hard could it be? Well, that's the same thing. I do that. Absolutely. <laughs> then you have to kind of, you know, mm -hmm. stop them here right. for a minute. Right. And some of them don't even know the potential that they have. Uh, so uh, I actually uh, said to a student, um, uh, you know, I, I need a research assistant because mm -hmm. I see the potential in the students. Yes. And I said, um, would you be interested in being my research assistant? Because my agenda is I'm going to introduce you to some books that's not on the syllabus that you right. that that's you are right. taking that's in other right. classes. Right. And, uh, but you're going to have to work for this. You're going to go in the library. You're going to learn some research skills. And, you know, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you malleable. Because I see, sense that there's this desire in you. Wax on, yeah. wax on. Yeah. So, you know, and then some of them take, take they, you know, they, they, they move into it and they say, Oh, Jack, I didn't know. I didn't know. And then someone's like, okay, that's a good one. I made a mistake. Let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all right. That's all right. Let you go right in. But all of us got here by somebody helping us. Exactly. Yes. Right? Exactly. Somebody exactly. The overwhelming majority of my mentors, and I say this as a woman, a scholar, were white men. Mm. Not all of them. Most of my mentors were white men mm -hmm. who said, we don't know how to do that, but we will create a space for you to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's all we ask in the white people for. My, <laughs> my, my, my just let us do us. My master's, uh, I was at uh, Perkins for the master's of religious education, and I'll never forget the teacher said, uh, you know, I know I'm going to call this professor in, uh, in Atlanta, and I think you need to have a conversation with him. In fact, do you think you can get an airplane ticket to go uh, and talk uh -huh. uh, with him? I said, well, I can, I can, I think I can find one. It was Grant Shockley. Yeah. And I said, uh, yeah. he says, look, what, you just sit down. I'm going to call him right now. White professor. Uh -huh. I said, you want to call Grant Shockley? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can find a ticket. <laughs> and he called him. 
I, I went online and I got me a really nice little cheap ticket mm-hmm. to fly to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Met Grand Chalet at, um, at, at Pascal's. <laughs> and that, my life was changed. <laughs> Let me just say. Oh, yeah. Well, and you thank God there was a Grand Chalet to meet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and somebody to send you to him. That's right. <laughs> White professor who said, this is beyond my purview, yeah. but I know somebody. That's right. That's yes, right. yes, right. right. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we all need to say amen to the white professors that helped to open the doors. The allies are important. Mark Hardy was my guy. You know, he opened the doors and you know, and pushed and opened spaces that you know I would not have gotten open. Gayard Wilmore was the other person. But it's interesting; they were all men. And part of the reason they were all men is because that's who was in the academy. But now uh, it's different. There's yeah. more women, black women, yeah. who are in the academy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we have the responsibility, not, mm-hmm. we don't have the luxury, we have the responsibility right. to open right. those doors for others. Yeah. It's a conversation we have to have because we have reached the numbers mm-hmm. where we can actually talk about how we will mentor the next generation. Mm-hmm. And we have just recently lost some of our some of our founding mothers yes. and fathers. We yes. lost Cole, we lost Katie Cannon. Yeah. And so, you know, we are third, fourth generation. So the conversation that needs to happen is what kind of intentionality should we have in shaping the next generation? The difficulty is I'm not sure we all are on the same page about our evaluative lens, about who we ought to be encouraging to think about moving into the academy and who we ought to be encouraging to really be in the community as ministers or as activists, bringing serious intellectual work to the community, not necessarily trying to reproduce being the academy, which is an important thing. I, I don't want to give up on the church and having ministers who are actually thinking ministers. Oh, I don't either. We need that desperately That's at this moment. When you say we're not necessarily all on the same evaluative page, I mean, mm-hmm. I can understand that very quickly, but what do you mean? That we have not decided what of the old ways of evaluating students who should go on uh-huh. need to go away mm. and what things need to be put on the table. Mm. So to have someone who has no emotional intelligence <laughs> but who's uh, smart, mm-hmm. and to be encouraged to go on to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. We need to question that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. we need to question people who don't like people, yes. but who want to get a PhD. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have to question people who actually think that the only thing that's important is furthering a few matters within a discipline, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. saying, yes, we want you to we want to invest mm-hmm. $250,000 in you mm-hmm. and put you in front of a very diverse crowd for you to tell them that whatever they're thinking about is unimportant. Mm-hmm. Only what's important is my, my postage stamp of, of right. knowledge. And so trying to look for whole mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who want to be whole yeah. people mm-hmm. to do PhDs is, I think, crucial for us. Yes. It's yeah. a different project, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important, and I'm going to add to your list, mm-hmm. to also think about if, uh, if not only do they have social skills and, mm-hmm. and those types of things, but also do they see that their craft is both a thinker and a teacher? Right, mm-hmm. right, right. That those are not bifurcated. No, yeah, no. yeah. In my, in my many years, I have only uh, went to a handful of students, not even a handful of students, and said to them, 
You need to do a PhD because you have the teaching light in you. I see it. I've had, I've had legions of students come and say to me, hey, doc, I want to do a PhD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and many of them have said, I would prefer to see you go work someplace else and not do a PhD. Not because you're not smart, mm -hmm. but because you don't have the teaching light. Yeah. You don't you don't really want to teach. And unfortunately, we still haven't gotten clear on mm -hmm. the fact that this endeavor mm -hmm. is about teaching. It's about teaching. And to distinguish even more finely, teaching for or teaching toward. Yes. You know, in terms of the, the, the role of the educator, mm -hmm. you know, I remember, I'll never forget this, I was doing a new faculty orientation for ATS maybe five years ago, and we had a room of 40 new faculty people, and you know, it's like right after the hiring freeze, because there was no money in there, finally bringing people in. And the, the task at that time, and I think it still is, is to try to get people to understand, uh, particularly in theological education, what it means to be a theological educator. And, you know, as, as Willie identified earlier when we were talking about faculty formation, it, it really does begin in the doctoral program. So you have all these bright, bright, bright folks coming out of doctoral programs that are discipline-centric. Yes. And being formed to be the next who, who, who's, who, 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 and have <laughs> no desire no idea, and you try to say, well, tell me about what it's like for you to be a theological educator. And, and one response was, well, I'm not a theological educator. I'm a biblical scholar. So, I mean, and there you go. And then that person's going to go into maybe, likely, a freestanding theological seminary, which is different from a university divinity school. Because that's what the jobs are, right? That's, that's the right. practical application. But, but that person who has already declared is not the person with the light on who really wants to be a teacher who's an educator. They want to be a professor who is passing on a body of information. And and, and so you, I mean, that's really critical. It sounds, it sounds like a basic... Um, premise on, on scholarship and teaching that the people who would go into classrooms as professors would know how to teach. That we are a long way from yeah, that assumption. Long way. We are a long way I mean, from in that. some ways, though, like the critical moment here is whether or not the academy, whether or not theological education will decide to follow the guild mm -hmm. or the church. Mm -hmm. Like, wh who is it going to serve? Because mm -hmm. it, it can't serve both at this point. And that, to me, seems to be the problem. Like, yeah. Is, yeah. How do we even evaluate someone right. outside of the criteria that a guild establishes? Because mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that if we continue to do that, mm -hmm. we, we will not be able to meet the needs that I yeah. think our students are asking yeah. me. And I want to, I want to, you know, I just want to push against that dichotomy. I mean, that's been part of my life work, is to push against that dichotomy you know, as a practical theologian, to try to bring those two things together. I think more integrated, more connected yes, yes, yeah, about and, these and pieces. And I think we get, we get formed into that, it's either this mm -hmm. or that. Mm -hmm. Katie used to tell the story all the time, and it broke her heart when she went to Union, and she was trying to get through, and, and whoever was her I mean, major mentor said, look, you have to either face the church or the academy. I mean, and, you know, she talks about how that 
just messed her up for a long time. And messed time. up a lot of people who yeah. knows their faith community sent them to get the, right. get the doctors. That's right. 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 It's, right. It's a particular kind of cultural construct, really a European construct, that imagines that if you are going to do serious, rigorous, scholarly thinking, mm -hmm. there's nothing else you can right. do. That's right, you and the reality is, is that, as we know, rigorous, seriously scholarly thinking, it happens within and amongst people. And you do not have to choose between being a very serious thinker, a very serious researcher, and a very serious person concerned about what's going on on the ground. Exactly. Those things, those things are, in fact, those things should go together. They should. If there's anything we've learned from the last couple of generations of of rappers mm -hmm. and yes. street activists, that these are very serious yes. thinking people. Yeah, that's right. yeah. And the, the tools that we've used in the past, we know, aren't the tools for the future. Right. So we've got to get some new perspectives, some new tools mm -hmm. to move forward. Mm -hmm. And the concerns on the ground are both in the congregation and in the gang. Right. And it's, right. also, uh, it's, it's, it's on the street corner. Right. Uh, we're using the word public theology. Yeah. Yes, it's that. It's been that all along. Yeah. I mean, those are where the people are, that's yeah. on the ground. And that's where yeah. the that's where the beautiful questions right. can be formulated. Right. And that's right. where you, I mean, we said earlier in this conversation, it's coming full circle, that that's why they're in the street corners, they're in the gangs, they're in the, you know, all the corners, in but the they're, in the church, class, yeah. they're in the classroom now yeah. too, because those people are in those the classroom. The classroom. That's right. They're the ones saying, that's Doc, I'm yeah, thinking about a PhD. That's right. right. So, you know, Completely just, covered yeah. in tattoos, yeah. right? I'm thinking Absolutely. about the Right. But let's think about that. Yeah. 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 Brothers and sisters, I thank you. Thank you, thank you. for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.